Welcome to the Kamloops Real Estate Insider Podcast, where we peel back the layers of the real estate market like the layers of an onion, but with fewer tears and much more excitement. (laughs) (laughs) Is that corny or what? My name is Parker Bennett. And I've spent the last 20 years helping people through the process of their largest single investment they may ever make, their home. From building inspector to real estate agent, I've chalked up a number of great experiences and strategies for everything related to the home buying experience. This podcast is dedicated to anything and everything around the Kamloops real estate market. Welcome to the Kamloops Real Estate Insider Podcast. Okay, welcome to the Kamloops Real Estate Insider Podcast uh, with returning guest Lisa Mooney, licensed broker, real estate agent, door knocking expertise instructor. Wow. Do you have that title? Behind my name. Yeah. Welcome back. Thank you. And congratulations to you on your recent top 10. Ah, yes. We traded places on that one. We did. We did. Good for you. Thank you. Um, We have a pretty serious podcast today. Today, we're going to dive into the pivotal aspect of buying and selling real estate, uh, the deposit process, or as I call it, the deposit dialogue. That's what we're going to name this topic. Uh, Often seen as more of a formality in the process of a real estate transaction, but a deposit plays a crucial role in the real estate transaction, acting as a symbol of the buyer's commitment and a safeguard for the seller. But how much should we put down and what are the implications of the deposit? That's what we're going to talk about today. Um, thank you for joining me, Lisa Mooney, on this epic. Absolutely. Thank you for having journey. me. Uh, let's just start off by uh, maybe just I'll give a little more clarification to the listenership, but Lisa Mooney is actually a licensed broker. So she has more to speak of on this matter than technically I do, mm-hmm. uh, as I'm just a, a lonely real estate agent. But uh, maybe what is a licensed broker? Tell me what about being a broker uh, changes the game as opposed to being a real estate agent? Um, as a broker, you kind of see a little bit more behind the scenes with regards to paperwork, things that should and shouldn't be happening, um, financials, and overseeing pretty much all of the agents within our brokerages. So a lot more responsibility. Um, Carry a bigger burden. Yep. Yep, for sure. Yeah. But it's good. A lot more, you know... Knowledge has to be had, which to me was a good thing because I needed some more education and just to be better at my job. Well, welcome. Thank you for stepping up. Thank you. Um, Not sure that everybody, even if they had the knowledge, would, (laughs) (laughs) but it is a, it is a, it's good. A huge burden to carry when you're the broker of a, when you're like the operating broker or managing broker of an office. You are essentially overseeing the activities of all the agents within that brokerage. Mm-hmm. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, because I actually don't know the the legalities of this. But let's say me as an agent were to break some sort of ethical code and get called on it. Mm-hmm. Um, how would the broker play a role in that process? Well, hopefully, we can catch it before it goes all the way through, and somebody. Um, Somebody pays the price, basically. And if something does happen and a complaint comes through, then it can be the broker um, that can take a lot of that burden as well, not just the the agent. Right. And, you know, to be fair, I'm basically backing up Audrey Shaw, who yeah. 
as we know, is our rock star. Yeah, Yeah. backup broker. So um, I lean on her a lot. Obviously, she has a lot of experience and knowledge that... I often explain it this way, um, and feel feel, feel, feel free to jump in. A real estate owner, their business is the business of having real estate agents. That's right. So like having them come to the brokerage, join the brokerage and operate within that brokerage is where they make their money. Mm -hmm. Now along that trail, they want a lot of real estate transactions to happen, but they don't necessarily on every agent make every dollar that that agent would bring in, in commissions and transactions. Exactly. So to keep the brokerage from drifting into the unknown charted waters, a managing broker steps in to sort of oversee and take a blunt of that responsibility from the actions of those agents to keep to keep everybody on the right side of the coin. That's right. Yeah. So I'll explain it. Well, yeah. I mean, Audrey especially, she goes through, you know, with fairly fine-tooth comb all of our transactions, Yeah. Um, mine included, you know, to make sure that something wasn't missed or done improperly. So that everything is legal as it goes through, um, and there's no loopholes that, that yeah, it's another found. set of eyes mm-hmm, with absolutely. experience. It's good. Even something as simple as missing an initial or a signature somewhere, you know, that means the contract isn't valid. Yeah, could so, be really a big problem come completion day. That's right. And the other thing that brokers look for is late deposits as we're moving into this. Yes, late deposits. It's on my. It's on my list. <laughs> So let's start by defining what a deposit is. Do you want to start? Um, well, when there's a contract between two parties, there has to be a consideration. And consideration can actually just be the promise from each party that they will f- fulfill the duties on the contract. Um, but as a sign of good faith, a deposit is often put in. So that is something that the buyer risks that they could potentially lose if they don't follow through. Right. So the way I explain it is um, it's a negotiated amount of money. Um, It's never standard. Um, A negotiated amount that is offered in a contract purchase and sale offering that can be negotiated by the seller back and forth. Uh, Monies can be held in a number of ways, which we'll, we'll discuss that. It often is held in trust within a brokerage and when there's a couple of real estate agents in the in the transaction. Um, that money, you said it best, um, is held uh, in good faith that both parties are going to um, adhere to the contract that they've agreed upon. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I like to describe it as this. If you have conditions in your contract and one of those conditions is subject to um, having a home inspection, and during your home inspection, you find items of uh, huge consideration that are are problematic deficiencies um, that that number tens, twenties, thousands of dollars, whatever. And you decide at this point, I'm walking away from this transaction. And in your contract, you have that terminology written in there as a condition to the sale is that I get to conduct a home inspection with a professional, and I have to be happy with the outcome of that inspection. So if I did that and I chose to walk away from the transaction at that time, I technically have fulfilled the contract. That's right. Because there was a condition in there written in there for that. And in that particular event, I should receive my deposit back. 
we're going to talk about how that that would play out. But if I did go through the due diligence and I was satisfied with everything and I removed my conditions, then that deposit becomes uh, a little deeper locked in a chest to ensure that now the seller and the buyer are going to actually complete the transaction in the terminology that we agreed on. Correct. Okay, I have four scenarios. I want to discuss each four scenarios. So the four scenarios are uh, titled like, let's follow the money. Okay. Let's see where it goes, okay? So scenario one is I write an offer um, and I have some conditions in my offer and those conditions get removed from the transaction. Where does the deposit go? So you're saying that the deposit was already in after acceptance? That's an interesting point. So that, that extends the conversation a bit because in the negotiation strategy of the deposit is also when the deposit is, is, is taken, right? That's right. So I would say that even though it's not standard, there is something that's pretty Kamloopian in the way that we write our contracts because a lot of the contracts that I see go through my visualize mm-hmm. indicates that the, the, the deposit is not to be uh, due until, let's say, a period of days after the conditions are removed. Right. There's a problem with that. Can be a problem with that. Mm-hmm. But most of that problem relies on, that's a seller problem, right? Because then they don't have that deposit in that's play. That's right. And if, if the conditions are, let's say, not adhered to by the buyer, there is no deposit really held in trust yet or or held by any party in order to uh, keep the buyer's good faith Exactly. Contract, right? So it really depends on which party you are or are acting for because, you know, having the deposit in before the subject removal time, so say three days after acceptance, that would be good for the seller. It would be a little bit more, um, you know, good faith shown by the buyer so that they have those funds just in case. Right. Whereas if you're the buyer, you would like to not put that money down until you know what's going going on with the conditions. So let's assume in this scenario, one, that the deposit was $10,000. It was due upon 24 hours after acceptance. Mm -hmm. And acceptance is now 24 hours beyond. And there was some conditions and all those conditions have been removed. So the deposit is held in trust. And let's just assume that the terminology indicated that it was going to be held in trust by the the buyer's um, trust account, buyer's Agency brokerage trust account. So now where does this deposit, it's sitting in this trust account. Correct. Collecting interest? Yes. So it's held in trust with the brokerage. And then basically if the conditions are not removed, the deal collapses. Both parties need to sign off on that to get those funds released. The buyer can't just say, I'm not falling through with this. We're collapsing the deal. I want my money back. The seller also has to say yes um, and sign a form to get the money released out of the trust account. The brokerage is a stakeholder. They're not holding it for any one particular party. So all parties have to sign off to get that money released. Um, And then if it's the same, um, if it does go through to completion, then the brokerage releases that to the lawyer. Right. And that goes towards... 
would be fair to say that once the money's in trust account, it's basically up to both parties to agree where it goes. That's right. So we we either agree to put it towards the purchase price, we agree to give it back to the buyer, Mm -hmm. we agree to something, but both have to agree to what we're doing with that. That's right. Okay. Yeah. And if the if the seller is not going to agree to give the deposit back, um, you know there is a way for the brokerage to send a letter saying we are intending to release this deposit just yeah. so that they can get an answer. But if that seller doesn't answer or doesn't sign off on it, the brokerage legally can't let that money go. Right. Then yeah. we need lawyers. Then you need lawyers. So, is there any interest that accumulates on a on money and trust? Yes, the money that is. Built up from the interest, actually, I believe it gets paid to the real estate foundation. Okay. Yeah. So it's... It and gets, that's, that's Canadian-wide? Yes. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's a... Don't quote me on that. I would have to look it up, but I believe... Yeah. I'm going through my course. I do I remember, remember that correctly. there was some yeah. sort of like non-profit that that money goes to. Yeah. 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 I would imagine that's a sizable amount of money. I would think so. Yeah. Millions and millions of dollars in trust over the course of time. Yeah. Collecting interest at 10%, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, scenario two. So in this scenario, um, there was a $25,000 deposit in negotiated in the contract, and there's conditions on the property, and those conditions are financing and, let's say, home inspection. Okay. And the bank has indicated to the buyer that, uh, so so we've passed the point at which the deposit was taken in. Okay. So 24 hours or whatever, and, and that's what we agreed upon in the contract. And now the bank is telling the buyers within their conditional time period that they're not going to get the money, the funds to purchase this property for whatever reason. So the conditions are going to be not completed in the same fashion that the buyer is hoping and the seller is hoping we're going to collapse the sale of this transaction with good faith. Yeah. Now, where does that money go? So there's a form that needs to be signed off by, as, as I was mentioning, uh, by the buyers and the sellers to get that money reimbursed back to the buyers because they did follow through all their due diligence and, um, you know, if financing is going to collapse the deal, then that's what it is. So then the seller needs to release those funds. Right. If they don't, they can, you know, it ends up in court basically. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in every scenario, if both parties don't agree to how this played out, it can end up in court. Exactly. And you'll be fighting to prove your position on those funds. That's right. So I often get asked um, by buyers, okay, so I'm giving you this $5,000 that's going to go into a trust account. But if I don't remove conditions, I just get it back, right? And it's it's like 99% yes. Yeah. Yes, you're going to get it back if you've done it for the right reasons. Yeah. So if you collapse a sale for the reasons that we wrote in the contract. That's right. But here's a scenario that I've had stumbled into on several occasions, and maybe you have experience in the same, same boat. We write an offer. We've given a deposit. We're doing our due diligence within our contractual uh, period. And another home comes on the market that they like better. Mm-hmm. Now there's a scenario that's tricky because um, in good faith, we didn't write a condition in there subject to the buyer not finding a better property within the that's a right. certain period of time, right? <laughs> I don't know if there's a clause that's written like that. <laughs> right. And now there's a moment of deception in the mm-hmm. contract uh, that the seller may or may never be aware of. Yeah. I'll tell you a funny story though. 
I did have one of these scenarios where a particular agent, particularly, sorry, yeah, a particular agent was selling a property and I had a buyer and we went through it and it was in multiple offers. Mm-hmm. And my buyer had won the multiple offer challenge and we had two weeks to conduct our due diligence. Yeah. The very next day, another property came on the market that fit the mold better. And immediately I got a call and he's like, I'm standing out front of this house. I need to look at it. We got to take a peek at this house. So I explained to him the circumstances that we're in. Yeah. And then I, I, I played along. So I'm going to, I'm going to take you through this other house because I'm hoping that you just don't like it and we could just carry on with life. <laughs> right. But when I pull up to the front of the building, I realize it's the same agent. Oh no. That's listed both properties. <laughs> so like I explained to them how impossible this would be to fool somebody. Yeah. In that, you know, you're going to collapse for a reason that is not legit. And then, and then right you're going to purchase another property. I'm not even sure where the loyalties would lie within the agent that had those properties listed, but it didn't matter. We didn't get there. Thank goodness. That's good. Yeah. Whew. Yeah. Okay. It can be, it can be tricky because you don't, you don't want to be deceptive and you need, need to follow through with all your due diligence. Cause if they do find out, yeah. say they call you on, you know, if you say, oh, we weren't approved for financing. Well, that seller's agent has every right to come back and say, prove it. Yeah. Send me a letter from their mortgage broker, from their bank, saying that they were not approved. Yeah. You know, so. And there is some discussion about the way that a lot of agents write their financing clause. Mm -hmm. It's not definitive enough to say uh, just approved for financing because if the seller decides that they want to offer financing to the buyer, that is a form of financing. That's right. And then you have no way out for financing. Yep. Right? Then you're bound to it. Then you're bound to it. Okay, scenario number three. Uh, this gets trickier. So we have an offer to purchase property, and the buyer and seller agree to a $5,000 deposit, and the deposit is due within 24 hours of acceptance. So we've accepted it. 24 hours have passed. We have some due diligence. Uh, due diligence period expires. We remove conditions. We're happy with this home. Everything is good, but the sale does not complete. So, uh, hmm. on the day in which the remaining $550,000 is due on a $555,000 property, um, something happens, it doesn't complete. The buyer is not, maybe doesn't have the funds. Something's changed in his life, her life, yeah. whatever. Uh, and there's Don't a, go buy a new car. There, yeah. There's a problem <laughs> within the transaction. So now what happens to the deposit? So they have removed conditions. That money is being held in trust. And unless that seller is going to have a really kind heart and let go of that money, it's going to go to court. And they will likely lose that deposit for not fulfilling uh, the contract and possibly might even be sued for damages. Yeah. So let's talk about that because sometimes people assume that if I just drop this five grand, it's no big deal. Mm-hmm. And I'll just move on to the next property because it's worth it to me. But the truth is that five grand is just money that's hard to get back and it's easy to give, but it doesn't mean that it's all that the seller is going to accept. That's right. They they could, in in fact, have another transaction that was relying on the money. Mm-hmm. There could be some damages that are proven in court. Yeah. And that $5,000 might just be a down payment towards what the buyer has to pay the seller in remuneration. Exactly. Yeah, so. if they if they have to sell that house at a lower price after that, yeah. maybe the market's gone down or maybe demand just isn't there. Yeah. 
then whatever price, you know, whatever price difference there is there, the buyer could be liable to pay that. Totally. Um, so, okay, so here's the final scenario, which is an easy one, um, similar to the last one. $5,000 deposit uh, is negotiated. Um, the deposit is due within 24 hours. The time period expires. The deposit is paid. Uh, the conditions uh, are due off and they come off and the sale completes. Mm-hmm. So where does the deposit go? Deposit gets transferred to the lawyer and it actually goes towards the down payment for the house, the purchase right. price of the house. That's an easy one. That is an easy one. Yeah. So one thing that wasn't mentioned, I don't know if you're going to bring it up, but that rescission period, that cooling off period that was brought in, Yeah. Um, buyers have their first three days after acceptance, three business days, in order to back out of the deal. And um, a lot of people, you know, if you do deposit after final subject removal, there's not money that's being held for anything. But if there is a deposit being held in trust, then that rescission fee can get taken out of that deposit that's held in trust. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. So let's define that a bit. So the rescission amount is... Uh, a quarter of a percent of the purchase price. Yeah. So it's not a huge number. No. Um, but it's very difficult to, it would be very difficult to get $1,000, $1,500 squeezed out of a buyer. That just walked away. That just walked away if there was no money held in trust. Like you'd have to sue for that money. And the minute you call a lawyer, you've already exceeded the amount of money that you're That's probably right. expecting to get. So it's a it's a small amount of money. However... Uh, the buyer has the right for the, at least in the province of BC, yeah, yeah, just BC is to, uh, rescind their actions of making an offer and getting an accepted offer on a property within 72 hours, not to include weekends and holidays. That's right. And if they do not, if they change their mind within three days, the purpose of this really is to, in a multiple offer, no condition scenario, which is a, a government, uh, regulated issue that came way too late to save the day. <laughs> but anyways. Just for paperwork. If the rescission period comes um, and the buyer decides they want to walk, they're obligated to pay that quarter of a percent of the purchase price directly to the seller for you know going through the process and tying that property up. That's right. So if you have a deposit money in trust, then there is a potential to get that money out of them because you'll never release the deposit to the seller. That's right. Um, and you you have the ability to get some of that. Sorry, the buyer, but you'll you'll be able to get some of that money back. Yes. So there's some pros and cons to having that deposit uh, in early as opposed to later. But I think the pro is for the purpose of the seller. That's right. Right. So yeah. that the seller having that deposit money in uh, a lawyer's hands in a trust account is more beneficial than having it later. And the buyer, from the buyer's perspective. It's always nice to not give them any money at all. That's but, right. But eventually they're going to have to give them something because in order for it to be a legal uh, contract to purchase a sale agreement, at least in Canada, right, you do have to have some sort of money, not money. Mm, no, actually. Consideration can be considered the promise from each side. Is that right? Yeah. See, I knew I had you on the podcast for <laughs> <or> real. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, for I it had to be a dollar at least. No. Okay. As far as... My studies have gone. Yeah. yeah. Consideration can be the promise from each side. Interesting. Signed off that they're 
going to f- fulfill. You heard it right here first. However, like I said, the deposit does show, you know, good faith and gives the seller confidence that things are going to move forward. So especially when we get into busy markets like we have in BC quite often, yeah. um, the, the seller wants to see that the, the buyer has the funds to put down and, and are willing to do that in order to, to get the, the deal, basically. Right. Which brings yeah. me to my next point, pros and cons of a, of a big deposit. So a large amount of money being offered on a deposit can really stabilize the seller's imagination on how serviceable they're going to be to be able to service the debt of the purchase price, right? That's right. So explain to me in your experiences, a lot of times I would say on cheaper properties or maybe even uh, just generally for the benefit of ease for a buyer, sometimes Mm -hmm. it's nice to not have a whole lot of money being put in deposit. And as a buyer's agent, when you're working with a buyer and you're trying to convince them, you know, to make a, a like a, an offer that looks substantial to, to be accepted, yeah, I usually recommend putting a little bit more money than less. But realistically, it's not really in the benefit of the buyer to put a whole bunch of money down. No, not really. And honestly, it's, unless... Unless the deal is not going to go through and they have a chance to to get keep that deposit, it's not really in the benefit of the seller either because it doesn't get put in their pocket. No. It's held in trust, right? So sometimes in a multiple offer situation, we'll look at the little nitty-gritty things of higher deposit or a deposit that's brought in before a final subject removal it's yeah. just so that it shows that they are just more willing to move forward and, and really wanting the house, right? And, and able to move forward. And able to move forward, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like if you if you have a a property that's let's say rural, you know, an acreage north of Clearwater by an hour and a half, and it's a mobile home and it's you know forty seven years old, the property's probably yeah. not going to be a million dollars, right? No. So typically, in the sense that the buyer that's purchasing that property may, you know, it's very subjective that if they're buying a property for 200,000 bucks, you know, there's probably not hundreds of thousands of dollars in their bank account. I mean, they could, but mm-hmm. so then when we're making an offer, the deposit amount a lot of times is very subjective to the, to the purchase price, right? That's right. And it's very different here, I think, than in other areas. Like, I don't know about you, but I hear about deals that are happening in the lower mainland or in Kelowna, and they're putting down like $50,000 deposits. Whereas here, you know, $500,000 house, often it's a $5,000 or a $10,000 deposit. So I don't know what makes it different in different areas. Yeah. Have you seen that? No, I I have too. You have buyers come from Vancouver and they're like, I can put a hundred grand down. Yeah. It's like, I, I don't know if I would. Yeah. I'd just hold back a bit. (laughs) <laughs> Keep it in your account so you yeah. can make some money on it. But I think that is also, I think that says something about Kamloops. Mm-hmm. I think that we just have a, a higher degree of faith in the community members. I like to think so. Like I think that um, we don't have all the the greasy deals. I mean, I like to think that. I could be totally just being a dreamer right now, but I just like to think that that's our environment. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. Okay, I have notes here. Uh, larger deposit can indicate your seriousness uh, to approach transaction. Obviously, that there's more risk for a buyer, and it's inconvenient. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, going to the bank and grabbing fifty thousand dollars or hundred thousand dollars isn't something you could do on your lunch break. You might have to call the bank in advance. You might have to, you know, you That's might right. have to move some funds out of an RSP or investments in order to, you know, 
strategically get that logistics of that money in a bank draft, right? That's right. And just when you do submit a deposit to the brokerage, all agents know you have a lot of paperwork to fill out. The FinTrack form needs to be filled out to tell us where the funds actually came from, which account it came from. So I think a lot of buyers aren't aware that all this paperwork needs to be done. So they're shocked when you're asking them for their bank account information. Yeah, let's talk about that. (laughs) I'm not going shopping. I feel really uncomfortable asking, um, let's say, a lawyer for Mm -hmm. his account information as to where exactly that those funds came from. Exactly, yeah. And I don't know what the onus is on real estate agents to prove that that's the right account. I Maybe you could enlighten me I on that. I don't think there is, honestly. Like I often ask them just to send me a screenshot of the account because right. then I know I'm going to get you know, get all the digits and, and know if it's a joint account because there is other items we have to think about too. So if it's a joint account, but only one of them is on the transaction, if that money's coming from a joint account or from a corporate account, we then need to capture all the information for the other people on the account yeah. or the corporation. So that means fin tracking and IDing all of the direct directors right. for that corporation as well. So it's a lot of, um, you know, it's part of the, the, uh, what do you call it? Anti-money laundering? Yeah, the anti-money laundering. I always tell my clients, I'm just making sure you're not a terrorist, basically. Right. <laughs> you know, just so they know I'm not being yeah. snoopy. It's just, this is what we have to do. Sure. Yeah. So if you have money that's coming gifted to you, you know, I'll compare it to like a vehicle, right? You get mm-hmm. a, Your parents give you a vehicle, they got to sign a gift letter. It has to be like notarized, I think, to some degree. Like, yeah, you have to prove so. that, that. Yeah. So... If mom and dad are going to give you twenty five grand for your down payment towards a uh, purchase of a home, mm-hmm. and the deposit money was to come out of mom and dad's account, now we are extending our FinTrack obligations to another third yep. party, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so we have to get their ID and hopefully meet them in person. Yeah. And get their bank account information. And Fill out a privacy notice of consent form. Oh yes, it's a lot of paperwork. <laughs> it is a lot of paperwork. Yeah. So here's another interesting kind of play on this because I, 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 I feel like the paperwork has quadrupled since I've been a real estate agent in the last 10 years. But um, looking at the FinTrack responsibilities, there's recent, actually, there's a recent uh, article that came out on the REM mag, the REM yes. real estate mag, yeah. about how the, the top 10 places where brokerages fail in deposits. Yeah. Number one issue, late deposits. Late deposits, yeah. Late deposits. So when we look at having a deposit in trust mm-hmm. and having an agreement in play to purchase a property and the conditions have been removed, um, sorry, I said that wrong. Let's say we don't have a deposit in play. Okay. Okay. But it's due after subject removal mm-hmm. and we remove conditions. Yep. So at that point, we are obligated to purchase the property. That's right. And we're obligated to pay this deposit. And what if it's late? If it's late, so if it's late, technically... Contractually. The deal's done. They haven't fulfilled their deposit. However, our admin is really good at catching these deposits, and when they're late, they'll touch base with the agents to make sure. Right. Did you just not you know, send the paperwork in, especially if it's being held by the other brokerage? We don't know. We have to get proof of 
deposit. Um, and there is that form that gets sent out if somebody's sent in a deposit late. Because, I mean, you and I both know we get busy with a lot of transactions and deposits are due at different times. So sometimes you think, oh, I think that deposit was in, you know, after acceptance. It's actually due after final subject removal and you forget to ask your client for it. Right. Then, you know, you can be a day late. And so it's going back to both sides, both the sellers and the buyers, getting them to sign off that the late deposit was okay. And it's almost like... It's almost an amendment to the contract. I was just going to say, it's almost yeah. like an amendment to the contract to say. So we both have to agree that it, it was okay to be yeah. late because realistically, when you say the deal's done, we're still obligated to purchase the property. Yeah. So we've actually, someone has broken... It's a breach of contract. The breach of, yeah, we've breached the contract, which yeah. is an option for a seller to get out of the transaction, right? Let's yeah. say they had a situation where... Somebody had offered them more money. They have a backup offer in place that's more money. They could easily escape from this contract. Yeah. Um, there's a possibility they could keep the deposit mm-hmm. if, if they if it did come and in sue late. Sue for it. Yeah. Sue or, for it. Um, and they could find their way into a better um, transaction. That's right. Yeah. It's a business, so you have to be... You have to be on top of things. Right. I always, I always look back when people are telling me that they're purchasing a property privately. And, you know, how hard could it be? It's, and shudder. It's, it's not that big of a deal. You know, we agree on a price and we pay it and that's the end of it. But there's so many places where things could get tripped up. Mm-hmm. And if both parties are ignorant to everything, nobody might be looking for trip ups. That's right. right? Yeah. But if they're, if they're aware of, you know, scenarios where they could trip it up. Yep. Even as far as there's one word that can be taken differently you know, the, the contract can be killed. It's just over one word. Yeah. So you have to be. And when the markets get crazy, um, there is situations where that everyone's looking for one word. Mm -hmm. Everyone's looking to get out of a transaction or, or, um, you know, because they have a better offer, they have something more attractive that's sitting on the table or they realize I shouldn't have taken that offer because in waiting for, Conditions to get removed and maybe completion. I realize that the market is just going in one direction, and yeah. I'm making money as as the crow flies here. That's right. It would be nice to get out of this transaction and resell it because it's worth more money now. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, finally, let's just quickly talk about multiple offers. I know we kind of hashed this out already, but in a final note, like multiple offers, when you're presenting multiple offers to a, a seller, how attractive is that higher deposit look in the eyes of a seller? I think it it can. I mean, if you're looking at two offers that are virtually identical, same price, same completion date, same included items, you know, and you're getting down to the the little, like I said, little nitty gritty bits, a higher deposit just shows more of a willingness and ability to fulfill. So I think that's the only time really in my experience, I don't know about you, um, that a higher deposit has really done much to get my client the place. Yeah. I think in order, from my experiences, the order of priority in a multiple offer would be purchase price is typically the number one thing looked yeah. at. And subject to sale. Sure, yeah. Yeah. And then conditions. Yeah. But I mean, like, if if you had a subject to sale and you were competing and there was, you know, everybody else wasn't subject to the sale, you know, and there's yeah. a possibility that might not be the most interesting deal, but it's not always a scenario. It's okay. still a little bit of you in there that's looking at maybe a 
$50,000 bonus to wait for another property to sell, it might be worth your while. Yeah, it all depends on the seller's situation, right? If they need something in place because they have a subject or they have a subject that they have a purchase on a place that has a subject to their place selling, sure. then, you know, they might not be willing to look at a subject to sale offer. Yeah, there you they go. Might go for the lower offer. Any final thoughts on deposits? Um, Do you have a crazy deposit story? But yeah, I had one um, deal that it was it was a funny one. My buyer was waiting for an inheritance to come in, and the funds were coming from the states. And he was positive that it was not going to be an issue. The money was going to be there by completion. Completion came. Funds were not here. So he actually gave up his deposit. We signed it over to the seller directly. Um, And then he also offered to pay $5,000 a week to the seller so that um, he wouldn't lose the deal. Wow. So it didn't go on very long. I think it was only a few days. So he ended up paying that $5,000 for the first week and they completed and everything was fine. But yeah, there's different things that can be done so that we can Hmm. try and get the deal to go through for everybody. I, I had one a few years back that was a $150,000 deposit and it was, it was to go directly to the seller. Wow. And even they had conditions. So it was essentially a non-refundable deposit. That's crazy. Of a substantial amount of money, um, well over 10% of the purchase price. And then the completion was delayed but not delayed in the, the manner that like it was delayed on contractual like, agreed yeah. upon. It was just negotiated very long close uh, because the seller was going to be out of town for several months. And the buyer eventually agreed. And what happened was is that COVID ended and the market started to drop rapidly. Mm. And it, it became very clear that there was a, probably a situation where the seller would would want, or sorry, the buyer would want to escape this contract. But there was such a huge deposit in there. Can't give that one up. That they weren't going to be able to give it up. It worked out really well for the for the seller. Wow. So yeah. Anyways, that's my crazy story. Craziness. I think I misplaced a, a deposit once. Uh oh. Like I spent several hours. It was just in my <laughs> it was just in my folder. I just couldn't find it. And of course I just panicked and started looking everywhere for it. But when right. I went back to the folder, it's just sitting in there where it's supposed to be. Oh goodness. It gave me a heart attack, though. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's... How would you deal with that? You'd be in big big caca. I think I'd just be cutting a check, but I'd have to do fin track on myself. Yeah, you'd have to fin track <laughs> yourself. <laughs> Anyways, uh, thanks for tuning into the uh, deposit dialogue here. Hopefully, uh, we added some value to your day and uh, expertise through the process of real estate transaction. Thanks.